Welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. On today's episode, Dan Rothschild, the executive director here at Mercatus, has a conversation with Mercatus scholars David Beckworth and Christopher Russo about inflation and deflation, supply-side bottlenecks, spillover effects, base effects, the velocity of money, the U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio, black swan events, and why we shouldn't fear a repeat of 70s-era inflation. If you would like to contact a scholar involved in this episode, please email mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Thank you for joining us. This is Dan Rothschild, Executive Director of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And I'm here together with David Beckworth, a Senior Research Fellow at Mercatus, a former economist with the U.S. Treasury, and the host of Macro Musings, the podcast for weekly interviews on macroeconomic trends. And also Chris Russo, a Research Fellow at Mercatus and a PhD candidate in economics at George Mason University. Chris has worked as an economist at the New York Fed and the Chicago Fed and is the newest member of our monetary policy team. Chris and David, a lot of conflicting analyses in the news about inflation, what to expect from the Fed. So I want to dig in on a little bit of what we've seen from the Fed recently and what is it that people should believe about inflation. So looking at what both of you have written, I think that you really see three different things that are are driving this bout of inflation. The first is expectations. Chris, you've written about that. The second, supply-side bottlenecks after a national lockdown of 16 months. And third, base effects or reversion to the mean. So Chris, let's start with you. What do we see in expectations about inflation going forward, either from the market or from other analysts? Certainly. First, Dan, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I think in terms of market expectations and expectations of professional forecasters, they expect that inflation will run a bit higher than the Fed's 2% target for some time, but will return back down to 2% in the long run. And it's ultimately, according to the economic theory, expectations that drive current inflation. So if people expect that the Fed has the tools and will use the tools to obtain their 2% inflation target, we will in the long run see 2% inflation. David, can you talk about supply-side bottlenecks and base effects? Lumber is, of course, the greatest example of this. We saw how the price of lumber increased by an order of magnitude virtually overnight before beginning to come back to earth. So how should we think about these supply-side bottlenecks and the, the reversion to mean on prices? Yeah, what we've gone through with the pandemic is a perfect storm of supply-side bottlenecks. So just a number of things came together that have created a once-in-a-lifetime experience with supply-side constraints. So everything from a shortage of computer chips to lumber mills shutting down to this capacity overall being constrained. And all these have, have spillover effects. So used car prices are really high. In fact, used car prices were a big part of the increase in the CPI recently. But the supply of used car prices was tied to the shortage of computer chips. So there's a number of spillover effects tied to supply-side bottlenecks. And all of those are beginning to turn around. There's a few that haven't yet, but many of them are turning around. So, for example, auto sales are declining. Last month's retail sales went down largely because of auto sales. Lumber prices are going down quite a bit. Grain prices are going down quite a bit. So there is a, a turnaround taking place. It's going to take some time, but this is just the beauty of capitalism working, doing its magic. When relative prices go up and there's a profit motive, the market steps in and responds. So for a number of the supply shortages fronts, that's being addressed. Base effects, the similar story, airline prices and hotel prices, they collapse. They're just kind of catching back up to where they would have been had there been no pandemic. So you look at Twitter, you look at media, especially conservative media, there's a lot of predictions of inflation and, and of a, a really serious and, and long-term level. What is it that the inflation hawks are getting wrong? 
think they've been getting it wrong for about a decade or more at this point, unfortunately. I think what they're getting wrong ultimately is that the the real risk here is not inflation, it's deflation. And I think we've seen that in part throughout our nation's history. Right now, we're in a moment where, as I think David might go on to describe, interest rates are quite low historically. And that binds the Fed in how much they can support the, the economic recovery from this sort of recession or normal recessions. That poses a deflationary bias, but that I mean inflation running below the Fed's 2% target. And of course, if inflation was to rise sustainably higher than the Fed's 2% target, the Fed has the tools to fix that if they're willing to do so, and I believe they are. And they've done it before in the nation's history as well, in the 70s and the 80s as an example, but also following World War II. David, you've written about structural disinflation forces. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Because this is very different than, again, what you hear from most analysts, from most people on Twitter. Yeah, even prior to the pandemic, we had disinflationary forces, both prices, also interest rates are being kept low, and there's good reasons for them occurring or reasserting themselves after the pandemic comes to a complete end. And they are several different forces. One would be the aging of the planet. That tends to put downward pressure on interest rates because older people like to buy fixed income assets, and that in turn is also affecting inflation. There's also emerging markets that want to have safe stores of value. They don't trust their own country. There are new regulations after the last crisis, and there's some increased risk aversion. Some people are going to, on the margin, want to hold more safe assets than they they did before. And we see this, and, and I believe the market is seeing this. The market is seen through the temporary blip in prices. So if you look at a 10-year treasury yield, for example, it's about 1.5%. So people who have skin in the game, people who are trading millions of dollars, people who think about this longer and harder than Chris and I do because money's at stake, they don't see this inflation. And they could be wrong, but I, I'd rather go with their forecast than some pundit who you know is really worried and sees only the here and now. They're looking through and they're looking into the future and they see these same structural forces pushing down inflation going forward. Or frankly, people who come on TV and advocate or, you know, prophesize very high inflation, they're selling their book, as we say in finance, meaning that they would profit if people came to believe inflation would be much higher and then go out to buy their products. So let me try to steel man the case for inflation. And that's that we've seen a massive increase in money supply, especially over the last few months, but, but over the last few years as well. So why is it that M2 seems to have stopped predicting inflation at some point in the 1980s? And does this mean that Milton Friedman was fundamentally wrong? I think that's an excellent question. I'll let David handle the latter half of that. I'll just mention that we're now in a period where what we think of as money should become a broader concept. We're used to thinking M1, M2, that's you know actual physical currency and deposits at your bank, as well as deposits at the Fed that banks hold there. But today, especially since our dollar and our debt is used around the world to facilitate transactions, really our bonds are themselves a form of money. So when the Fed goes out to buy, say, $120 billion of debt each month of U.S. treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, they are in a sense replacing one form of money, bonds, with another form of money, reserves. And so in general, I wouldn't expect that much of an inflationary pressure from that alone. Yeah, I, I think part of the story is what we use as money changes over time. And so M2 may have been a good measure in the past. It's not a great measure now. That's, I think, the point Chris is making. Also, you can't just look at M2 or whatever your measure of money is. you got to look at how often it's used. So Milton Friedman would also point to that. Milton Friedman acknowledged, you know, if, if the velocity of money has declined dramatically, it doesn't matter if you have a big surge in it. And what we've seen is this increase in the money supply offset dramatically by declining its usage. 
Will it continue? Well, for now, it appears to. In fact, the usage of money is closely tied to like the 10-year interest rate, treasury interest rate. And that has been suppressed. It's not going back up again. It's hovering around 1.5%. So I have reason to believe that the velocity money will stay relatively low and, and we shouldn't worry too much about this. It, it is understandably a little shocking to look at him too, but I think what's going to happen is the velocity offset is going to make a big difference. David, I'd like to go back to a point that you raised a a few minutes ago about safe assets. And I think that this goes back to Chris's point at the very beginning about expectations. So you write, quoting the the great economists, the Bengals, that it's an eternal flame of investors looking for safe places to put their assets, and they continue to put them into the United States economy. They continue to buy U.S. bonds. They continue to finance the debt. Are you at all concerned that that this romance will go out at some point? Is there some tipping point in terms of debt-to-GDP ratio where this will become unsustainable and where they will look for other safer assets to buy up? Anything is possible, but I think it's unlikely at this point we're going to see something like that occur. And and yes, we've seen a big run-up in debt in the U.S. We're now at 100% debt-to-GDP, so the amount of debt is about the size of the economy But it hasn't, again, altered the investors' love affair with U.S. debt. Again, 10-year treasuries, 1.5%. If they really were getting worried, we would begin to see them dial back. Now, in the far future, this could happen. But there's a lot of structural forces in place that's going to make it very hard to move from, like, U.S. dollar system to, say, the Chinese yuan or even maybe more euro-based assets. And one of the big reasons for that is there simply aren't many other assets out there this piece that you mentioned where I write this this love affair story with U.S. Treasury debt, I, I put a measure in there that shows foreigners outside the U.S. hold around $30 trillion worth of U.S. you know dollar-denominated assets. Some of that's Treasury, some of it's, it's corporate bonds and other stuff. But if you're going to have a run on the dollar and you're going to see people give up and, and switch to other assets, you need to have a substitute for that. And there simply isn't something on that scale yet. And and maybe one day cryptocurrency, maybe one day Chinese yuan, but we're a long ways from that. So in, in some ways, the investors are stuck with the dollar. I might frame it even a little bit differently, although I agree with everything that David just said. In our country's history over 200 years, we've built up an extraordinary amount of institutional credibility, both with the U.S. Treasury founded with the first United States Congress and more recently in the last 100 years, the Federal Reserve. That gives us a bastion of capital, so to speak, with our world image and our institutional credibility. If we were looking for a black swan event, something that might happen that would ultimately lead to the type of hyperinflation that some people have been prophesizing for many years, I think it's that loss of institutional credibility we should be guarding against. So how much of the current blip of inflation do you think is tied to the massive fiscal stimulus that's come out of D.C.? And I I hate to use the phrase stimulus because, of course, it wasn't really intended as stimulus, but that is apparently the shorthand that we're using for it. And it does seem to have had some sort of stimulative effects, at least at the margins. Is this what's being reflected in current numbers? And as we see D.C. pull back from this kind of stimulus, are we likely to see inflation numbers and interest rates affected by that? Well, I do think it's a meaningful part of what we're seeing right now. People are spending funds from their checks. There's still a lot of that money sitting on the side waiting for you know full employment. People are waiting to see if the recovery will be complete. But I, again, I wouldn't worry about this too much because this is more like a one-time pop. We're not going to see sustained growth in government debt. It's, it's been huge. There's talk of another infrastructure bill. But I just don't see the political support there for programs like these continuing on a regular basis. And you need something like that to occur for inflation to really take off. You need to see sustained growth 
and government debt year after year after year. And I just don't see that's in the cards. You know, if we were look back to the 1970s, many people look at the 1970s as something that they're worried about that we may be going into right now. That was like a 15, 16 year journey. It didn't happen overnight. And so we would have to replicate something like that. We'd have to have sustained growth in government debt. And I just don't see that happening anytime soon. David, you've written about the narrowing of the nominal GDP gap recently. What should we take away from this and why does this matter? Well, the nominal GDP gap is the difference between what the country thought would happen to the dollar size of the economy. And you can think of that as a total income or total spending on the economy and where it actually is. What it means is people have based contracts, taken out mortgages, you know, gotten leases for businesses, all based on a certain expected path of income and sales growth. And it's, it's closing rapidly, which means we're getting back to where we would have been had there been no pandemic. We're getting back to a close to at least a full recovery. There's still some ways to go. There's still a number of people who are out of the labor force. But I think, you know, we're definitely on the verge of a full recovery. So if you were the counterparty to the analysis that you have right now, what is the black swan or the tail risk event that you would be most concerned about? I think I would just reiterate what I mentioned earlier about institutional credibility. If there comes a point where the public, either the American public or the world public, which as David has mentioned, invests in a large portion of our debt and assets more broadly than that, becomes disillusioned with the state of our institutions, anything's up to change, particularly since it is expectations in my view and I think an economic theory that drives longer run inflation. I would add to that it's not so much a black swan as it is an ongoing problem that we haven't fixed. So I mentioned all the supply-side bottlenecks that should be corrected within the year or so. There are some other supply-side bottlenecks that are still problematic. They're not going to cause runaway inflation, but they're going to be front and central and cause pain. And many may confuse it for inflation, and that is our housing supply shortage. That's not going away anytime soon. And Dan, we have great colleagues at Mercatus who are working on this and our urbanity program, but also oil prices. Oil prices probably won't turn around soon in time as well. But both of these, of course, are in settings where markets aren't allowed to do what they normally would do. And those are going to have a real pain imposed upon household budgets. But I, I wouldn't view that as catastrophic, just as something we're going to have to work with and wrestle with going forward. One other thing I think it's useful for people who are concerned about inflation to also understand this is you know a, a pandemic we haven't had this happen in our lifetime on top of that we've had the fed adopt a new framework and that framework is very different than before and that's also added some confusion into the mix if i can just really talk about that framework in the past the fed has let their inflation misses be bygones let bygones be bygones so in the last decade when we've actually undershot that two percent target the fed has adjusted policies that things appropriate but they haven't tried to make up for those misses now they are and in fact, if you look at a longer time horizon, not the last 12 months, but in fact, the last, say, 24 to 60 months, inflation's pretty closely averaged 2%. So in some sense, what we're seeing now, it's not intentional, but it could be thought of as making up for prior misses. It is hard, though, Dan, for people to maybe to, to see that because the Fed is allowing things to run hot. But here's the silver lining in all this. If, if this new framework does work out, we will actually have greater long-run price stability. Even in the short run, it doesn't seem that way. If the Fed can really pull this off, you'll be able to better predict prices over the next decade or two. So let's talk about what the Fed is thinking. On Wednesday, the Federal Open Markets Committee announced there would be two hikes likely in 2023. David, you said in the New York Times, and I quote, there's still a long way to go. This is the next phase, and it's a lighter touch phase, but it's not the beginning of a tightening cycle. 
So my question is to both of you, how is the Fed likely to think about this challenge over the next couple of years? And how specifically are they going to be thinking about their new targeting policy and, and how to enact it? Maybe for the listeners, it'd be helpful to clarify the predictions that you're talking about. All the FOMC participants, the people that come to Washington who have been appointed by the president or appointed by other localities in their in their home Federal Reserve districts, come to Washington to vote on monetary policy. And every other time they do this, they put forth their own individual projections about monetary policy. And so what Dan's referring to is if you take the median of those projections for the Fed funds rate, overnight interest rates essentially, the median participant is predicting two in- interest rate increases. But the Fed, of course, is data dependent, as they've emphasized, and they've also emphasized how patient they're being. In the most recent press press conference, Chairman Powell even said that, you know, the dots don't predict inflation, the dots being their projections, nor can markets really predict short-term interest rates all that well. As a consequence of that, what I think the Fed is going to be looking at over the next 12 months and 24 months is to continue to look at inflation. Is inflation persistently running above 2% in a way that they become uncomfortable with? Or is it, as I expect and I think as David expects, to return to more normal levels as these supply chain disruptions end? The other part of what they'll be looking at, aside from inflation, is also the labor market. Does the labor market continue to strengthen? And does the combination ultimately of the labor market strengthening and inflation provide good cause to begin a slow and deliberate cycle of stopping increases in the balance sheet and in the much longer future, increasing interest rates? So let me put some numbers on to what Chris just said there. The Fed, if you look at their economic projections from this meeting you just mentioned, Dan, for this year, they expect the inflation rate, and they look at what's called the PCE inflation rate. It's a little bit different than CPI, which is better known. Their preferred measure, PCE inflation, they think will hit 3.4% this year, and then next year go down to 2.1%. So you have this spike this year, then it returns close to its, its target next year. And if you look at consensus measures, blue chip, survey professional forecast, very similar story. So the Fed is largely in line with the consensus. It's in line with what markets are saying that we're going to have a spike this year. We already see it, but it's going to come back down going into next year. So that's where the consensus is. And I think we can take some comfort in, again, bond markets, people who have skin in the game, they're saying this, forecasters are saying this, and that the Fed seems to be also on board with this vision. So looking at the people with the skin in the game, I think that's a great place to leave it. David Beckworth, Chris Russo, thanks for being here today and joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you would like to request a meeting with one of our scholars or ask them a question, please email Mercatus Outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information.